Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. On this episode, we are going to talk New England IPA with an expert of the style so that you can figure out exactly, well, how exactly do you go make this hazy, wonderful, juicy, awkwardly dividing beer in our community. But before we get there, we're going to take a brief break and hear from one of our sponsors, Brewers Publications. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. So in this episode, we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk New England IPA, and we're going to talk with Ed Coffey. He's going to walk us through the style, what he thinks of it, what the keys to the whole thing are, and really just how to make some of the most delicious beer that you possibly can. And you may notice we don't have Denny on the program because he's going to cringe at every mention of the word juicy. So hey, Ed, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody? Hey, Drew. How you doing? I'm Ed Coffey. Uh, I write a little blog called Ales of the River Wars, and uh, New England IPA has been a an obsession for me so long that I didn't even know it was called New England IPA when I started becoming obsessed with it. Let me ask you, Ale of the River, River Wards, that sounds like we're in Game of Thrones Tolkien territory here with the name. So <laughs> where, where does that come from? So that was previously these ales were of the River Wards, and the River Wards are a section of Philadelphia right along the, the Delaware River. Specifically, I lived in Fishtown, and that was part of the River Wards. So that was kind of, you know, my little claim to the area that uh, the ales were coming from there. But now they're coming from New Jersey. I'm, I'm not sure if that's an improvement or not. Neither am I. I'm not sure either. <laughs> All right. Well, so uh, real quick, let's talk about how long have you been brewing uh, when you started the River Wards there? So I've been brewing for about 10 years. 10 years, I think, in this fall is, is when that would be. My wife bought me a... Uh, uh, actually, an all grain kit. I jumped right into all grain my first batch, and it was a total disaster. But things have been a lot different since then. Uh, meandered my way through the hobby, a little bit of extract, then back in all grain again. And and not long after I got back in all grain, was started getting obsessed with these kind of uh, New England IPAs, and mostly by way of Tired Hands, which is just outside of Philadelphia. I just have to ask, how many spouses out there of dedicated homebrewers do you think? feel responsible for getting them started on this hobby because hey, I wouldn't bought my husband a kit or my wife a kit. And then the next thing they know, they, they're obsessed and the closets are full and they're like, what have I started? Exactly. I think there's a lot of that. My, my wife, Marcy, definitely there's moments that she 
she regrets getting me that kit. But, uh, you know, when she walks to the garage and pulls uh, from the kegerator a couple times a week, I think that she remembers that it's it was all worth it. Well, and then that naturally leads to the question of what do you get out of brewing? You know, we have that whole thing that we talked about, people's archetypes. So what do you get? Uh, you know, for me, I've always enjoyed kind of like keeping things simple and looking at the little nuances of what you can change in a recipe, you know, t- brewing 10 gallons, splitting with two different yeast or just making little tweaks here and there and just kind of like digging deep and seeing what those little changes can can do for a beer. I'm not always one for the extreme beers. Mm-hmm. I like them, but I don't brew them much because I can't get through five gallons of it. But I like the little nuance and try not to hide behind uh you know, big flavors, even though I like the big flavor beers. So what do you think was a little nuance that you changed that made a massive difference in your beer? Or was there one that surprised you? Probably historically was the use of oats in these IPAs that I've been brewing at home. You know, I I, I had a, a heady topper in the past and that kind of opened my mind to how different IPAs could be. But once I started using oats in an IPA and like and pale ales, it just kind of changed things for me and the drinkability and low bitterness that kind of went along with what I added to some of those beers really kind of opened my eyes to not everything's got to be a bitter bomb and difficult to get down. When did you first start doing the oat thing in your IPAs and payloads? When did that take hold? About 2011, which is, again, coincides with when Tired Hands opened. Um, when they did open, everyone got kind of you know nutso about their beers. And I started small, just just like 5 6% of the grain bill with flaked oats and you know, notice a little bit of a difference, but kept creeping up from there. And really, I mean, even when you look at, I mean, at home, I pretty much brew mostly saisons and IPAs. That's pretty much it. And I'd say 80% of the time, there's oats finding a way in both those beers. So there's a little bit of obsession there for me with, when it comes to oats. I like what it does to the flavor profile and to the body of the beer. As a guy who made a whole 30-minute episode talking about the oat, I can't disagree with you. And I do agree. I think almost all of my milds and my saisons invariably have some small dosage of oats in there. I just like the effect. Yeah, I mean, it can really go such a long way, and especially in, in a uh, in a low gravity beer where you're you know you're scratching for every inch of body in the beer, so it's not just this watery mess. A little bit of oats can go a long way, and and now there's so many different kinds you can choose from. Naked Golden, Thomas Fawcett Malted, Flake Dose, there's so many out there. Well, and now I'm noticing that it seems like some of our micro maltsters that are rising up are also starting to do some things with oats as well. That's for sure. Some of the, uh, there's a few new maltsters in, um, in New Jersey that I just started um, uh, becoming familiar with. Uh, one's called Rabbit Hill Maltster. And, and everyone I've talked to, they're like, oh yeah, we, we, we planted oats. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be having that around. So I think it's not, not just me and you, but everybody's kind of all jazzed about the oats. Well, and I think the whole New England IPA, hazy IPA, whatever you want to call it, as a trend and its use of oats, I think that will actually be sort of an additional little push towards some more playing with it. Yeah, for sure. And maybe, you know, hopefully, you know, people will start using it in some other styles and, and see how far you can really push it. It's It doesn't necessarily only have to be the saisons and the IPAs that you and I now are using them in, but it, who knows? Some people find some other uses for it. Maybe 100% oat malt beer. I don't know. I've done that. It's kind of hammy. <laughs> That's what I- that's what I've heard. I, I, I've always wanted to try it and I never got around to it, but I heard some other people like, eh, I don't know if you want to do that. I'll just be happy if some people decide, you know what? Sounds like a good idea. An oat stout. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the whole New England IPA. We talked, you, you briefly mentioned Hetty Topper and Tight Hands. So what's your understanding of the style? Where does it come from? When did it rise up? 
So as far as when it came from, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's anyone really has nailed down the definitive history of it, but I think a lot of people kind of tip the cap to the alchemist and Hill Farmstead for kind of starting the trend of, of, I guess, what the New England IPA has become today. You know, I think their idea of what the beer was when it started was a little bit lower bitterness, you know, creamier body. It's something that's just very drinkable as opposed to something that's very bitter and, you know, a little bit of more of a sipper, which is great too. But I think that was kind of the driving force of where they were, that was, they were coming from. I don't want to speak for them, but that was my interpretation of what I was drinking that they were putting out for a while. And yeah, the first time I had a heady topper, it was kind of an eye-opening moment for me, an 8% beer that drank like a 4% beer, which is kind of dangerous really in the end. Interesting that heady, and I do tend to think of heady as being like at least the first one I heard of. I mean, I have a long history in New England, but I haven't lived in New England for 20 years. So that was the first one I remember hearing of, at least you know, catching people's attention enough to you know, really run everything out. And yeah, it kind of broke a lot of rules. I think it broke a lot of people's conceptions. Now, of course, I live here on the West Coast, which means to me, you know, when everybody's like, oh, you know, West Coast IPA isn't drinkable, it's bitter. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're each they're a different style and they have, you know, a different time and place, you know, and, and some people prefer one over the other and that's fine. I mean, I still love a great West Coast IPA. I have no problem with it at all. I drink a little more New England style IPA because... I live in an area that there's a lot of that being brewed. So, you know, I think I think there's a place in the market for both styles and I've I have no problem with whether it's hazy or clear or bitter or or not. Well, it's interesting because I've noticed in here at least in LA, the West Coast breweries that are making New England inspired IPAs still can't quite step fully away from the you know what this beer needs? Bitterness, lots of bitterness. But that's great though. You know, they're taking something that someone else kind of tweaked and putting their own spin on it. I mean, that's kind of how we get to where we are in beer. You know, it's if everyone just kept doing the exact same thing, you know, we would never, never have all these beautiful, weird new beers out there and new styles as divisive as some of them might be for people. You know, if if a brewery out West is doing a New England IPA and they want to make it a little more piney than juicy as uh, (laughs) Denny's favorite term is, that's great. I love that. I mean, I think it's, it's a really good way to put your own spin on, on something that that you know, other people have been working on it. I think it's it's a, it's great. That's a great thing in beer. So one of the things I think is also interesting. You mentioned Hetty Topper coming in at that eight percent and drinking like it's four percent. Here in America, I think the trend has been IPAs getting stronger and stronger and stronger and more bitter, largely driven by the West Coast and the whole double IPA thing. But one thing I've noticed it seems to be happening on is while there are still some of those New England IPAs that are way up there, you know, in the eight and nines. One of the things that the New England IPA seems to have been fueling a resurgence towards is actually pulling some of that alcohol level down. For sure. And now I'm seeing more of these New England inspired IPAs that are coming back. I mean, when I first got into craft beer, you know, back in now what might be the dark ages, an IPA was six, six and a half, and the strongest ones were like seven. And now I'm seeing these New England IPAs actually even pull past that and going down into like, you know, five, five and a half, getting back to the sort of pale ale territory. Yeah, it is interesting how that's changed. I, I, I know what you mean. You know, where maybe even six, seven, eight years ago, the extreme IPAs were, were 10 plus percent for a double IPA, which is, you know, kind of wild, right? I mean, that's a sipping beer. It's a, it's a much different beer than what these New England IPAs have become. And I think the shift to a lower alcohol is, a little bit of a shift of how beer is in general these days. I think people love their big beers, but know that they have a time and place. And when they're out with friends, 
they really want to have four or five beers as opposed to sipping on two for a little while. I think it kind of coincides with that and with the flavor profile of New England IPA being something that's a bit more drinkable, a bit more sessionable with a lower bitterness. The lower alcohol kind of just comes hand in hand. And I think also with that lower alcohol, when you're using these using adjuncts where people are using oats or wheat or whatever they're using to build the body in the beer, I think you can kind of get away with a lower alcohol more easily. And you know, people aren't saying it's thin or it's you know too too small for them and throwing an obscene amount of hops out of it, of course. And I don't know about you, but it seems like one of the things that has caused the New England IPA to shine, and maybe part of what fuels that whole pullback, is the rise of all these sort of new super fruity hops, like with the, all the tropical fruit characters that really seem to be showcased very well in this style. Maybe that's kind of part of the origin, really, was... You know, you see all these New Zealand hops like Nelson or uh, and even the, the newer American hops that Mosaic and Citra that are great in uh, West Coast style IPAs that are, you know, paired with something a little more piney. But the New England IPAs on their own or paired with other fruitier tropical fruit hops really kind of work really well together. And maybe that was part of it where brewers were seeing these new hops, trying them out, noticing that something a little more tropical and fruity as opposed to dank piney was which is kind of like it was new to them and, it, and they thought people would like it. And I mean, I sure do. I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great flavor profile, kind of reminiscent of a fruit juice, not to use the term juicy too often. Cause it, it, it <laughs> juicy is kind of a goofy way to describe it. I mean, juice like might be a little better, but that kind of coincides with the body of a beer that's a little bit creamier, kind of reminiscent of a, of a fruit smoothie even. Let's talk the haze controversy. I did a presentation on some hazy IPAs not too long ago to, to my club. To a brewer, at least amongst the older brewers, everyone took the haze thing almost as a firing offense. People obviously coming back and saying, oh, well, you know, this is a sign of laziness or it's yeast or it's it's gross. It's what's going on here. What do you think haze plays into with the style? How do people cause it? Was it something that you think is accidental or do you think it's actually something that gives an impact to the beer that should be kind of a critical part of the beer style? It's tough for me to say that it actually impacts the beer style as far as you know the flavor because i, I worked with marshall brulosophy at nhc last year and i think you and denny got to try the beer where we find one half and didn't find the other it didn't clear up and they didn't taste any different but if i were to cold condition it for a while of course it's probably going to drop clear it's also going to be two months old and not taste nearly as good so there's a little bit of like a, a balance that i think people are trying to hit with how fresh it is so the haze is there as a byproduct of the sum of its parts. For me with this style, I, I don't see the haze as a goal. and I've never seen it that way. I just think that it's the way you've constructed this beer, the haze is there. Maybe you don't want to do something to remove the haze for fear of reversing any work that you just did to achieve this certain flavor profile. So I do understand people kind of having a, a little bit of like a, you know, a shock at looking at a really hazy, murky beer. But I also can understand that some of these breweries are maybe getting the haze in ways they shouldn't be because they're trying to achieve it, where I don't think that should be the goal. Now, if you're rushing the beer and there is a ton of yeast in suspension, that's not really what you should be doing. And if you see talks from John Kimmick of The Alchemist and you hear about the links he goes through to ensure his beer is obviously fully fermented and pushed with CO2 and not with pumps and ensuring that he doesn't lose any of that, those aromatics, he is not cutting any corners with that beer at all. I mean, He's one of the best brewers in the world for a reason, and his beers happen to be pretty hazy. But there are some breweries that are adding flour, or they're 
rushing beers to market and there's tons of yeast and suspension. And those are the ones that I think maybe I can understand when somebody sees the haze or tastes it and it's a little bit acrid from the yeast that's in there, a little bitter. I can totally understand people kind of not not feeling that. And if that's the first introduction to New England IPA, I wouldn't blame them for not coming back that many, that, that much more, especially when you see pictures on the internet of all these really murky looking glasses of beer. It's not what we've grown accustomed to over the years. You see lagers and, and West Coast IPAs that are brilliantly clear. It looks like somebody made a mistake, but if done well, and if it's a byproduct of how you built the beer and you're not adding flour just to achieve a haze, I think it's, you know, something that maybe you can get past and learn to embrace even. To summarize the Ed point of view on this, haze, not bad. Intentionally inducing haze as a non-natural byproduct of the process that you're going through to generate all this hop character is bad. Yeah, mine was a little more long-winded, but that's basically the gist of what I was trying to say. I, You know, it is funny, though. That's how I, I feel about it. And I've always said that it's a byproduct of how the beer is is constructed. However, if... I was a brewery and you and you just walked into my brew pub for the first time and you look at the menu you're like, hey, Ed, I want that. Uh, oh, New England IPA. I'll try that. You know, I'm out, I'm out in New England or, I'm at, you know, out in this area. Um, and I just I slide this brilliantly clear beer to you. You're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not a New England IPA. So maybe if you're going to sell it us and call it a New England IPA, maybe it does need need to be hazy. So I, now I'm kind of torn <laughs> at, at, to a point, right? <laughs> I've talked myself in and out of it. No, I mean, I, this is something I think about pretty often. If the BJCP was to write the style guidelines and add New England IPA, they would probably say haze is appropriate, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you brew it and it's brilliantly clear, can can you call it a New England IPA? But, New England IPA, but does, also, does it matter? If it tastes good, it's your IPA. It's the IPA that you brewed. It doesn't matter if it's hazy or not. For me, I don't mind a little haze. After all, I'm a Saison guy. Yeah. Haze has never bothered me in any way, shape, or form. I'm not a lager guy or anything like that. I will admit that some of the New England IPAs I've seen out there that glow when backlit, they're so hazy. Those those always kind of give me pause. But at the same time, it just is what it is, I think, with some of these things. And I've been amazed to see some of the people out there who are taking some of these super hazy beers and going, well, here, let's see if there's any yeast in there. Let's see if there's any hop particulate matter in there. And when they go through and they put them on a slide and you go through and look, I'm actually amazed at like how many of these beers that seem to be super hazy or super murky don't seem to have the yeast and extra hop material in it that we think they should. It's almost kind of amazing sometimes. I mean, there's there's batches that I'll brew that I'm like, wow, this is this is downright murky. And it's three weeks from brew day that I'm I've finished dry hopping. I mean, it's, the beer is fully fermented out, but it is even a little too murky for my liking. You know, if you looked at under un, under magnification, I'm sure that there was no you know yeast cells like all over all over in in a glass. But it, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. And I remember having the beer you know that you guys did for the taste off last year, and Marshall saying those cups down in front of me and. You know, sitting there, I, I'm tasting it, and yeah, you're right. I mean, I I chose the wrong beer in terms of the triangle test. So did I. And I just remember looking down, because of course, you're not supposed to look at them when you're doing the tasting. And after I made my choice and announced it, I looked down and I looked at the cups and went, I, I don't know if you actually heard me on the podcast, but I do know under my breath, I swore, because it was just like, son of a dang it. Because <laughs> once you looked at it, it was like, yeah, that one. Ugh. Yeah. And there wasn't a huge difference in clarity in the two, but when you really hold the, held them up to light, it was a tiny, tiny difference. But you had to you had to really search for it, even in a clear glass. Now that's the haze controversy. We've talked, you know, the fact that I mean, like these 
are trending towards lower alcohol, but really seem to be pushing as a different expression of the hop. We're not going West Coast bitter. We're not going English malty fruity type. We're not even going the old fashioned East Coast IPA that everybody used to malign with a ton of caramel. Now we're going for something that's still pale, but instead of pushing bitterness is trying to push, I don't know, a straight nasal injection of hop oil. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, it's it's a lot of it is about the aromatics, really. I mean, there's a ton of hop flavor as well. There's super aromatic West Coast IPAs, but it's a different type of aromatic. This is the aroma coming off it. I mean, really, it smells like a fruit smoothie a lot of times. Right, big old fresh cut bowl of fruit. Exactly, yeah. That's the style. Is there anything else that you feel like we should cover about the style before we actually dissect how to make the style and what you've done? No, not really about this, exactly about the style. I mean, as far as production methods, I have... I have some opinions on certain things, <laughs> but I think we covered a lot of a lot of the bits and pieces, especially the um the haze. All right, well then let's get into the heart of the matter. How the heck do you make one of these things? I th- still think it's super simple. That's, I mean, I think it's one of the s- most simplest style of beers to make right now. That's like hot. I mean, everybody's really into it. When you really break it down and look at a recipe, it's, it's just a lot of these beers are, well, at least the way I make them, I, a, a decent base malt. I use I like to use Vireman Pale Malt with oats, and that's it for your for your mash. You know, at 152, mash at 152, uh, a small bittering charge of CTZ, and then a decent amount of hops at five minutes, and then mostly Whirlpool. What I like to do, even as small as a beer that's 1050, um, I'm using about six ounces of hop dry hops uh, for five gallons. Do you have that split up in different ways, or uh, I, I do split it up sometimes. Um, there's you know, I've tried all different methods. I mean, there's a lot of there's a big push for dry hopping during primary mm-hmm. to get uh, those biotransformations, which is science that's over my head. But I I like to use the term and then make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. Hey, you and me both. <laughs> but I think also part of that dry hopping during primary, there's also because there's a little bit of active fermentation going on. You have CO2 kind of churning everything up, and you're getting. A, a good contact with with the beer, so you're keeping the the beer swirling and and getting contact with all the hops that are in there. Similarly to how a a professional brewery might blow CO two off the bottom of the cone of a of a fermenter to to get those those dry hops kind of reincorporated in the, in the beer. But yeah, so I, I sometimes I'll, I'll do three ounces of the dry hop towards the end of primary, maybe maybe like when things are about sixty percent done, um, and that's kind of an approximation. It's usually after about three four days. And then another three ounces in a purge keg for only about three days. I give it about a, give it a shake every few days, kind of again to to mix it all up and get some good contact with the with the hops. And then I actually push it from a dry hop keg to another keg under CO two, and and by that point it's pretty well ready to drink. But you know six six ounces for five gallons in the dry hop is about where I like to start. I've gone as high as twelve for five gallons. I think there's a point where you're just throwing hops at it and you're you're not you're not getting much more, Captain. We can't dissolve any more hop oil in this solution. Yeah, I mean, you're, and with how expensive hops are, you know, do you really need? Do you really need to go from eight ounces to twelve? Pro- probably not. I think you'll be okay with with, with eight ounces. But it's fun. But this one goes to eleven. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's mostly so you can tell people. Oh, I used almost a pound in the dry hop for five gallons. I've known plenty of people who do that same sort of talk with West Coast IPAs of like, you know, I have these multi-day dry hop schedules, and I used three quarters of the world's supply of hops in a gallon of beer. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's just something that 
drives people to that sort of mess. Most of the time, someone tells me that. I'm like, yeah, I'd like to try that, actually. Yeah, pour me a beer of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple of those where it feels like you're just uh, straining leaf material out of your teeth. So with the the beer, you know, usually when you're doing this, do you have a typical range that you like to be in in terms of, you know, gravities and alcohol? So to, to your point uh, with this style, uh, New England IPA being kind of a shift to like a lower alcohol, I, I pretty much brew these beers 1050, 1055 original gra- gravity. These are mostly just beers to put on tap that I drink at home. And again, I, I like to have a couple as opposed to, you know, I, well, I have two small children, so I got to make sure, you know, I'm not passed out cold in case I, I need to be called in the daddy duty. But yeah, 1050 to 1055 is pretty much pretty much where I live with these beers. I know that's probably more in the pale ale, uh, low IPA range, but I like to keep them a little more sessionable, but not hold back on the hops at all. Still going pretty heavy. So now when you're at this 50, 50, OG, uh, 50 to 55 OG range, what are you looking at in terms of IBUs? No, normally around 35. And that's kind of like, it's something that I have a hard time really, that's, that's what Beersmith is telling me, 35. I have a hard time believing that that's exactly the number. But most of the bitterness I'm getting from is, is a first word hop with CTZ pretty early. I'm usually trying to target about 15 to 20 IBUs there. And then with a five-minute addition, I'm usually adding another ounce and a half for five gallons. And you know that could be another 12 IBUs. And then the Whirlpool is a bit of a mystery to me of how much bitterness you're actually getting. I think you and everybody else. Now, when you whirlpool, are you going for a specific temperature range? Are you fine with just off the flame? Or are you do you try and do the whole, oh, I've got to get this to 170 and then whirlpool the hops? I, yeah, I've played with all those different temperatures and everything. And, I, you know, it's it's tough because I'm not doing a brulosophy triangle test, right? Or, you know, a triangle test that you guys would do. Mm-hmm. And I don't really notice a huge difference in, all right, I'm going to start the whirlpool, hops in, or flame out, hops in let it whirlpool, let it chill for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or chilling it down to 185 about, say, adding those whirlpool additions and then waiting. I don't know that I and I get like a huge, huge difference in the beers between those two methods, really. So a lot of times it's just whatever I end up doing on that day. F- flip a coin. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, did you have a couple of beers on the brew day or, you know, you're slacking on getting things. Um, but, you know, it's kind of at that point when I'm just brewing these beers at home for, for fun and, and home drinking, um, I'll kind of, you know, whatever mood I'm in, really. I'll, maybe I'll add it in, 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 at the end of the uh, boil, or maybe I'll, I'll drop it to 185, 170. But I, I don't notice a massive difference in the end product, really, especially when then you're throwing, in my case, 6 to 12 ounces of dry hops at it. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Yeah, you're getting a lot of hop oil in that particular direction. Yeah. For bittering, you said, I want to use CTZ. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, very classic, very classic American IPA hop. And then... You know, you have all this dry hopping and whirlpool hopping. What are you normally using in that world, or do you just play? Uh, what with, with different kind of hops? What I use in whirlpool. Yeah. So, in the case of a beer I've brewed, probably more than any beer I've ever brewed, uh, it's the Tired Hands Hop Hands clone. That is uh, Amarillo, Centennial, and Centennial and Simcoe. Just those three, and even proportions at five minutes, twenty uh, the whirlpool and dry hop. Which is it's kind of funny because those are hops that are used in West Coast IPAs, but and yet we're getting a little bit of a different expression from that combination of hops with the, you know, how this beer is, is constructed. It's, it's, it's interesting to really look at it. I mean, you could look at this and if it was without the oats, you might think it, it would turn out to be a West coast IPA, obviously maybe different yeast, but that's where I kind of, I live in that area, maybe 
pretty often, Amaro, Centennial, Simcoe. Nelson Salvin is a like one of my favorite hops in Citra. And these are obviously hops that everyone is familiar with. They're, I'm not breaking any ground there. But with this style, you can go no wrong with those, really. And Mosaic. Mosaic is it's another one that's really my favorite. I know a lot of people like Mosaic and they like Galaxy and these things. And I've seen a lot of beers out there where there's like, all Galaxy, all Mosaic, all the time. And my problem with a lot of those is they become so fruity such a strong fruit hop character that it almost starts to me to taste like fermenting rotten fruit and so one of the things that denny and i've been talking about and playing around with is actually very close to what you have there in your original list of hops amarillo centennial and simcoe blending you know some of those high oil hops like the simcoe and amarillo are with a sort of more classical sea-like hop like centennial and seeing if you can't get like some sort of balance delay there uh, absolutely. I, um, that's such a great point. That's something I kind of always try to strive for is, is pairing, like, like you said, something like Amarillo or, or Citra or Galaxy with Centennial or Cascade or something like that, kind of to, to layer a, a, a depth of flavor. Um, you know, single hop beers are, are a lot of fun and some of them are, are fantastic. But I think there's something to layering a couple hops in there and getting a little more complexity in that hop aroma and flavor. And yeah, using some of the, some of the classic sea hops paired with some of those most aggressive hops really seems to work really well for me. Let's face it. I mean, there's a lot of room to play nowadays with all these new hop styles. One thing that we haven't mentioned is what is your yeast strain of choice? I know that this is a sort of magic bullet for a lot of uh, New England IPA brewers, a lot of choices that people are saying, no, that's the one. The strain I use is seems to have become the most popular strain, uh, and that's that's why I use 1318 London Ale 3. I've kind of run the gamut of strains to using in this, in this style of beer. Um, I started using SO4, and that was based on a recommendation from Gene from Tired Hands. And not not that I know him at all, but uh, he stopped by our table one time and asked us how everything was. And I was like, ah, let me ask you some questions about hop hands. And he was pretty forthcoming, except for the yeast. He told me he wouldn't tell me what yeast they use, but he said um, uh, SO4 is is a great great one to start with. So I started with that for a while, and I really liked that. I still think it works really well. I know some people still don't like dry yeast that much, but it's super easy. It's cheap and it's a really great strain. But I've used Conan was was a big one from everybody kind of sells a, a strain of Conan these days. The reason why I fell out of favor with that strain is it's it's pretty finicky. I've had problems with a lot of beers stalling mm-hmm. depending on on which lab I was buying it from. And not all of them, some some labs it was pretty solid throughout, but it was a little bit more finicky to ferment out. And I like the character of the beer, the peach notes that you get from it. But 1318 is just super reliable for me. And I think a lot of people have kind of found that as well. It's it's a really great strain. I mean, it's it's good top cropper if you're into that kind of stuff. But make sure you have a lot of room in the headspace of that fermenter because it, it tends to like to blow off. Yeah, 1318 is a is a heck of a climber. It really is. But one underrated strain that I've, I've always pushed in this style, and I think it has a little bit of a, um, I don't know, a negative connotation on this strain these days, is a Sac Trois from... White Labs. Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting what the number is. 644. Is that what it is? You know, I used it for years thinking it was a Brett strain, like most people, because I feel that the New England IPA wort is a pretty versatile wort, especially if you want to do a 100% Brett beer because there's a lot of oats and Brett doesn't create a lot of glycerol. You're saving the body there and you're, you're kind of for 100% Brett beer. It actually works super well. But when I thought I was using a Brett strain for a long time, then we all realized it wasn't. I've brewed a lot of 10 gallon batches split with 1318, the other half with Sac Trois, and it is an incredibly fruity strain, and it dries out pretty well. 
it really works really well in this style. And it's kind of a good change up to kind of mix things up a little bit. And not everyone knows it's not Brett. You know, I hope more people will, will start using it, you know? Yeah. Just because it's weird doesn't mean it's not Brett. And it also doesn't mean it's not good. Exactly. Yeah. I encourage people to brew more Brett beers. That's another interesting point. I think with particularly if you're using Brett in that sort of primary role, you know, where its characters get to be more muted. Brett versus some of these fruity hops would actually be sort of an interesting combination. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. That's so- that's a shift I've went on, and this is a little off topic here, but with Brett beers, I've been shifting to using a little funkier strains, and then using these kind of new world fruity hops as opposed to using a fruitier Brett strain and fruity hops. You know, it's it's all of the same. So I, I I've been liking a little funkier Brett character paired with with these fruity hops in a New England IPA where it's a little bit weird. It's a little different. Like I said, it's a good, it's a little, little change of pace from the, uh, the big fruit bombs. Well, I was going to say, I mean, this is already such a new style that that is very fluid. I think if you're not playing around, you're kind of missing out on part of the point of it. Yeah. I mean, how, how else did this New England IPA get started? I mean, people getting weird in the brew house and trying some, some different stuff. Now we have a, a style that is, arguably what about six seven years old and it's sort of the latest craze and i think has actually been one of the things that's kept the ipa going or really as i like to think of it it's really a resurgence of pale ale (laughs) no that's a great point it really is a resurgence of pale ale because like like you said before i mean there's a shift downwards in in alcohol percentage with these beers which i i'm a big fan of yeah it is kind of a resurgence of a pale ale i mean don't get me wrong i still in the summer will buy a case of sierra nevada pale all the time i love the classics but I also like a hop hands too. It's a different kind of pale ale. It's a little different. It's still still great in its own respect. I think the last thing that we haven't covered here is water. There are people who have sort of differing philosophies on what water profile should be. What's yours? It, I know like the, the big philosophy is high in chlorides, right? Right. I buy into that. I think you don't need to go as high as I think some people believe you need to. I pretty much, I like to stay in a, in a two to one chloride to sulfate ratio i know a lot of the calculators will do sulfate to chloride but normally i'll 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 have about 150 ppm of chloride 75 of sulfate not you know i've seen a lot of people do 200 ppm of chloride in like as low as possible in sulfate i I think you're losing a little bit in the finish of the beer you want a little bit of like a, a little a very slight bitter finish to get yourself like wanting to reach back for another sip i mean if there's nothing in the finish i mean it's kind of forgettable and I think a little bit of sulfate does help, especially when you're bittering these beers so low and trying to achieve a low mash pH. I mean, I, I try to shoot for in the like 5.2 ranges. Why for 5.2? I just want to go as the low part of the range. Uh, when I use uh, use one of the online calculators, I think it's Easy Water. Whenever I target it in the in the calculator and then I actually measure it, it's usually higher than what the calculator tells me. It's never been lower for me. And that's just my water. So that's kind of, you got to get to know your water. So if anyone out there hasn't gotten their water tested and they're thinking about doing this, like stop now and just test your water. Go to Ward Labs at $20 to send a sample to them. At least you'll get a good idea where you're building from. But for, for my water, this is both when the ales were of the River Wards and now they're in New Jersey. I've noticed when I, do in the, when I use the calculator and then I measure it, the mash pH it's usually higher than what the calculator ends up giving me. You're aiming for that lower pH, not as that you feel there's a brewing impact. It's that you're aiming for that lower pH so that what you actually get in your brew kettle is what you think you should have. I'm not fighting the efficiency game, but I do believe that a little bit of a pH in the fi- final beer is pretty important as well. 
my opinion, and this is really just like kind of in my head, I think sometimes, is if I start with a low pH in the mash, I brew brew in a bag nowadays. So I'm, I'm really kind of making sure that pH is low. And then, you know, looking at what the final pH is of the final beer. Normally when I, when it's a little lower and I don't adjust it in the end, I just wait until the next brew day and try and change things. When the final beer pH is a little lower, I tend to think that the, the finish is a little brighter and the hops are a little brighter. And that, again, this just could be in my head, but I, it's just something that I kind of noticed once I started measuring the final pH of these beers. So I kind of start going low in the pH range. And maybe this is because I brew too many sour beers. Uh, I do like a little bit of acid in the finish of the beer. From a, a gustatory perspective, acid is a good thing you know, for that brightness. Yeah. I, I, I do hope that at some point in time we can get more people starting to think about uh, – measuring their beer in like TA as opposed to, you know, pH, even though TA is harder, yeah, <laughs> but it has more meaning in terms of an organoleptic thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's something I'll, I'll admit. I'm, I haven't dove into as much as I, as I'd like to, but I really should start measuring TA in the, in the sour beers that I brew and these hoppy beers. I, it's, it's kind of the last piece of the puzzle is water and finished beer pH. I think is something that maybe, I mean, home brewers and pro brewers out there uh, that don't always look at. I think it's like that last little piece that you can push yourself over the edge and make a great beer. We've been really talking around the recipe. I think a lot of people have taken inspiration from, which is the hop words, which I think you said that came from hop hands. Yeah. Tired hands, hop hands. I could run down it to make it a little more clear. Yeah. Cause I've kind of bounced around all over the place. I'm targeting uh 1050 original gravity. And that's by way of about 82% pale malt for my baseball and 18% flaked oats. And then for first wort hop, using depending on what the alpha of your CTZ is, I'm using about a quarter ounce of CTZ to get somewhere between the 16 to 20 IBU range. And again, that depends on the alpha of your hops. And then not another... Oh, actually, I do add Whirlflock in these beers. <laughs> I know people ask me, why do you still add that? Because there are there is stuff in the kettle that I want to drop out. I'm not shooting for a, a murky beer here. But And then at five minutes, I add equal parts Amarillo, Centennial, and Simcoe, five or a half ounce each, which is relatively light. And then for a 20-minute Whirlpool, I do three-quarters of an ounce of Amarillo, three-quarters of an ounce of Centennial, three-quarters of an ounce of Simcoe. And then once the beer is fermented out and all the yeast is dropped out of suspension, I will either split this six-ounce dry hop with three and fermenter at the tail end of fermentation when things are still bubbling, but things are starting to clean up. That would be this dry hop is a total of six ounces. It's two ounces of Amarillo, two ounces of Centennial and two ounces of Simcoe. Most recently I will, I will do three ounces in primary, like I said, towards the tail end, then three ounces again in a CO2 purged keg, taking care that everything is CO2 purged. Um, and I'm not losing any of the aromatics that I've worked so hard to, achieve so far and then that's all fermented out with weiss 1318 and a nice healthy starter using the calculators you can find all out there oh and again the mash pH, or i'm sorry sack rests is at uh 150 for everybody who's listening don't worry we'll include a link to the recipe so that you don't have to you know sit here and furiously transcribe slow down put the podcast in half speed as i speak a mile a minute <laughs> we all do because, hey, life is too short to keep talking when there's beer to be had. Exactly. Any tweaks that you've done to the recipe that you think are were fun or things that cause you to have some discovery? Actually, you know, this recipe is one I've been playing with for a long time, but it has uses flaked oats. 
I've been using a lot of malted oats recently, mm-hmm. really for about the last year and a half, ever since I, and I swear I'm not obsessed with tired hands, but that's where I get a lot of inspiration. But I heard Gene say on a, uh, that's Gene Brulé from Tired Hands on a podcast, say that he uses no flaked oats and uses all malted oats. When that was on the podcast, I heard everyone scramble their computers trying to buy malted oats, which surprisingly is not that easy to find uh, on the internet. Nope. I ended up buying sacks from you know an online supplier that was way too expensive and don't tell my wife. Yeah, so I've been using that a lot and and that's kind of changed the recipe that I've been playing with because I found you need a lot more malted oats than flaked oats where I if I go over 20% flaked oats, that oat flavor really kind of overwhelms the beer. With malted oats, you can really push it pretty high. I and mean, I've I've been touching nearly 40% Thomas Fawcett malted oats. I have a traditional old Dutch style recipe that's like basically like a triple that uses malted oats and it's about 60%. Wow. That's pretty wild. Oh, it's good. Yeah, that sounds really good. All right. Well, so there you go. We got malted oats. And of course, obviously, if you, I think if you wanted to play around and had some variation, you could replace some of your oats with golden naked oats Yeah, and get a, get a different character in there. Don't replace all of it because that would be a little too sweet. Yeah. I've played with them a lot and you're right. It, it, it can get a little too sweet, uh, especially at this 18% number. I wouldn't go really over like 10% with them. So you're right. It does get a little too sweet. Um, one thing I will say about the Thomas Fawcett malted oats, if you're going to use them, they are a pain to mill. If you don't have a mill, Try to get them milled for you, but they may not mill them to your specification. I and mean, I run them through my mill four times to get them to where I want them to be. And that's just my crappy, finicky mill. The first time I use them, I, I'm like, oh, malted oats, this is great. I'm going to mix them in with my base malt, throw them right through the mill. And I look at them and they are just not crushed at all. Yeah, they're tiny. Yeah, they're really tiny. So mill them separately from your base malt and ensure that they're hitting a crush that you're you're happy with. I've also had good luck where if I if I make sure they're well incorporated into the mix, put the pale malt and the malted oats together and stir them together. Usually I I find that I'll I'll get a pretty good crush on them. Not perfect, but life's too short for perfect. Uh that's a good idea. So what the baseball kind of pushes it down a little bit. It kinda of acts like an abrasive. No, that makes sense. I'll try that. If it doesn't work, I'll be uh knocking on your door if it pays for my next batch. You owe me two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> And thank you so much for taking your time to talk about New England IPA, the hot trend, the controversy, the haze, the fruity, juicy, messy smoothie of a beer that seems to be, you know, a lot of people's favorite nowadays. And hey, you know what? The ones I've had, some of them have been great. Some of them have been bad, just like every other beer I've had. Thank you again so much for joining me. And I'm, I'm glad that you could take the time to be on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Drew. I appreciate it. It's been a fun. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of New England IPA with Ed. And remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Facebook, on Reddit, on just about every homebrew forum out there. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky and that the brew is out there. Oh,